This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 28. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. And you know, when it comes to the show, there are really two questions that I get asked more than any other. So the first is how to actually buy ETFs, so how to actually be an index investor, what tools to use, which ETFs are great ones to consider, and how to actually do it step by step. So that's why I built the course to basically answer that question. But the second question that I get asked most often is from Canadians who are either in their 50s or 60s, are basically about to retire, or they will be retiring in about, you know, let's say 10 years or less, and are looking to learn how to do it properly. So how do you withdraw from your portfolio properly to pay as little? tax as possible, for example. What are some of the best practices and things to look out for so that you don't run out of money during your retirement? Now, obviously, when it comes to retirement planning like this, things get really complicated and the risks are ridiculously high since you're basically at a life stage where you're going to start spending the money that you've basically been saving and investing throughout your entire life. So the stakes are really high. We're dealing with a lot of real money here. And the terrifying thing is that there really are no do-overs. So In other words, if you mess this up, you can't just hit the rewind button, get all your money back and basically try again. So because of this, it's extremely important to get this right as the worst case scenario is basically you running out of money during your retirement, which is obviously a pretty big deal and and, pretty catastrophic to most people. So if you do run out of money, then going back to the workforce may not be an option due to the physical and or mental health that you may be in at that particular time. And that's something that there's only so much of that that you can control. And at the same time, employers might also have a preference to, let's say, hiring someone younger that they can basically pay less money for and that they can groom to hopefully stay with the company long term. Unlike you, you know, you may not be as attractive as an employee at that age because they know that you'll basically retire at the first chance that you get. Also, with all the development in medical technology, now more than ever, we're faced with this new challenge of living too long and actually outliving our money. So this makes having a good financial plan that you basically review with a professional periodically even more important to basically ensure that you are living the type of lifestyle that you want in retirement while minimizing the risks of running out of money. Now, I'm not trying to instill fear or anything like that, but I say all this just to help anybody out there realize that it is critically important and that doing it wrong can actually be catastrophic to both you and your partner's life potentially. And so you have to take accountability and responsibility for your financial situation and not just hope that everything will somehow turn out okay. So with that said, I'm basically of the opinion that since the stakes at this stage of life are so high, you need a customized financial plan specific to your particular situation. This is definitely one of those times where you can't just read a blog post about the top 10 retirement tips and basically assume that you're all set, that you know everything there is to know or enough, and that some general guidance is basically good enough for you as well. You simply can't do this because the stakes are just too high. So you running out of money in your retirement is obviously a pretty big deal. And there are too many variables in your life that can change the plan drastically. So for example, the assets and liabilities that you have are different from between you and another person. The income sources you have in retirement will vary from person to person. The dependents you'll have, whether it's your children, maybe it's your parents, your health history, your goals, your ambitions for retirement, the inflation, the market returns that you've endured over your lifetime. The size of your emergency fund can have an impact The lifestyle you want in retirement obviously has an impact. Family dynamics might change like marriages, deaths, inheritance, and risk tolerance as well. And really the list goes on and on and on. There's just so many different variables to consider. So we can't just have sort of a silver bullet, you know, one solution, one best practice that, you know, if everybody just follows this one thing, everyone will be happy and successful and everything will be great. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. And so to address and really help you with this, I'd like to introduce you to Sandy Martin, who is a professional fee-for-service financial planner here in Canada. And now Sandy has actually been requested by listeners of the show. And in this interview, I chat with Sandy about the top questions that I've been asked from Build Wealth Canada listeners, especially those in their 50s and 60s that are nearing or at that retirement age, all right? So enjoy the interview. Thanks for submitting those questions. 
Now, just to give you a bit of a background, Sandy is an expert in helping Canadians answer questions specific to their situation, such as, are you on track to retire? Did you maybe miss something in your analysis? Are you saving enough for retirement? What's the best way to take out income from your portfolio to minimize taxes based on all of your assets and all of your income sources? How much do you need to save so that you can retire comfortably? When can you retire? And can you fully retire now? Or can you maybe semi-retire now? And when should you choose to take your CPP and OAS? Very big question, very common question as well. What kind of lifestyle can you expect when you retire based on your current savings and your current savings rate? And of course, how can you help ensure that you don't run out of money in your retirement? Now, if you'd like to learn more about Sandy, or you can even get a free 30-minute consultation with her to basically start tackling some of these questions, you can reserve a time slot with her by going over to the show notes at buildwealthcanada.ca slash 28. So just the number 28. It's totally free. Sandy's fantastic, extremely knowledgeable about all this, and I'm sure you'll get a lot out of chatting with her. All right, now let's get into the interview with Sandy. All right, Sandy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. Now, before we dive in and get all technical, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I'm an enormous nerd. So there's, that's <laughs> the one thing to know about me. I really like talking to people and I like talking about all sorts of things. Obviously, I really enjoy talking about money, but um, yeah, I'm, I just I find people very interesting and I can occasionally keep asking questions when it's long past time to wind up a conversation. <laughs> 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 Sounds good. Uh, so yeah, and you're a fee-for-service financial planner as well. Yes, uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about that too? Yeah, well, I'm. so I would describe myself as an ex-banker. Um, I spent a long time working in the bank system, um, which I have a lot to say about, but not here. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I became a fee-for-service financial planner back in 2013. And so, of course, I speak directly to clients and charge them for my time Um and, and talk about kind of all sorts of things. I think a lot of the things we're going to talk about today are specifically kind of are around the retirement set of questions that people have. But um, yeah, I just get to talk to people about money and goals and meaning and fulfillment and all of those things. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the way that, because I'm just trying to think now with some Canadians, maybe they're not familiar what a fee-for-service financial planner is. I've I've brought it up many times in past episodes, but in case this is the first episode someone's listening to, can you maybe tell us a little bit about how you work versus, let's say somebody just, you know, they bank at some bank and they see, oh, I can get a free financial, you know, f- quote unquote free because <laughs> that's not really free, but, you know, free financial uh, planner to help me with things. And so, you know, how is it that that you're different? Sure. Um, uh, kind of traditionally, financial planning has been tied with um, investment advice and and paid for. Um, through the commissions earned or the management expenses earned on um, investment product sales. So, for example, um, an annuity contract that pays the the insurance broker to give you that advice about whether you should purchase an annuity or not. Um, Mutual funds pay the person sitting at the desk to give you the advice as to whether they're suitable for you or not and and whether they're, you know, kind of investing without worrying about the product itself um, whether you're on track for retirement or any of the things that people think about when they think about speaking to somebody who says they're a financial planner. Um, so in that in that system, the kind of it's all product and transaction driven, right? So it, even in a bank, that person sitting behind the desk doesn't necessarily get paid directly by the commissions or the management expenses on the mutual fund. The branch itself earns income, the bank earns income, and then they pay a salary to that person sitting at the bank. But all of their performance reviews, whether they've done a quote unquote good job or not, um, that's all based on the amount of revenue they've brought into the bank that's attached to a financial product, so a credit card or a loan or an investment or any of those things. Um, which means that if you are actually looking to purchase financial products, those people know a lot about financial products. Often they only know a, a kind of the financial product that the bank has deemed most profitable um, right. <laughs> or has kind of told them about in a sales meeting or set a target for. Um, but uh, 
um, so those people know about products, but if you're looking for something that's not transaction specific, so um, can I afford to quit my job in five years and start my own business? And what would be involved in that? And what should I plan for? And what's safe? And then how do I plan for retirement after that, for example? That doesn't have a, a product, an obvious product attached to it. And so the people who are who are compensated for product sales are either going to not really be able to help you because that's not their expertise or from kind of a business perspective that's not the model that they've set themselves up for so spending six hours with you talking about your goals doesn't lead to a product sale and therefore they don't get paid and that's not a smart business person so that's the infrastructure that's been set up in Canada fee-for-service simply means there's no product sale the product well there is I mean the product is my advice and my expertise and you pay directly for that and it's not there's nothing else included in that transaction it's you give me money i give you advice the end right and it's very uh, it's very custom you're not selling anything on the back end where you're saying where your advice is driven it could potentially be driven by a conflict of interest because you're getting some commission on the back end by selling the mutual funds or something of that nature, right? Yeah, there's a lot of scope for conversation there. I mean, we could spend, I'm sure, a couple of hours <laughs> yeah. just talking about the regulatory framework in Canada. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yes, essentially, that's that, that's the point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the, the way I personally look at it is it's kind of somebody like Sandy, it's it's kind of like hiring a lawyer or an accountant, right, where they have their area of expertise. And so in, in Sandy's case, it's financial planning, you know, kind of money management, things of that nature. And so you just like you would pay a lawyer an account, you pay them whatever kind of you agree on for whatever service they're going to provide you. And they give you advice based on your specific situation. And it's very custom and they have your best interest at heart uh, as opposed to somebody that says, okay, I'll do it really cheap or I'll do it for free, but I'll get paid on the back end from the things I sort of sell you. Uh, and then because then there could be a lot of conflict of interest there as well, right? Because now are they being honest? Are they recommending something to you because it's the best choice for that person? Or are they recommending that to you because they might get a bonus or a promotion at work or whatever the case may be for selling the most of that particular product, right? So there's a lot of this <laughs> kind of sketchiness, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although, I mean, there is some, I think there are, I believe there are really good people that work in the industry mm -hmm. the way that it is now. It's just... Sure. The whole infrastructure is set up to reward a certain set of behaviors, and um, mm -hmm. which we would say which we would call conflict, right? Um, but it's very difficult, I think. Kind of fee for service planning and financial planning, uncoupled from product sales, is fairly new. Like it's it's a really newborn kind of profession, and so um, I think there's an element of risk for somebody who was at a bank or was in that commission structure to move to this type of structure. I can see why it seems sort of daunting <laughs> so anyways yeah. i'm just trying i'm trying to be fair to the people that are still behind the desks while for sure for while sure. talking about their infrastructure <laughs> <laughs> for sure yeah no, and i'm definitely not saying you know everyone in this particular model is bad or good yeah. or anything like that there's obviously good people and bad people in in different you know under each model i would say uh but it's good to know sort of what the different models are and like you said how they're set up um, so that you can kind of strategically make the decision for yourself and then being fully informed before you pull the trigger and decide to go uh, with someone like Sandy or someone at your bank or whatever the case may be. Sure. So, um, yeah. Okay, that sounds good. So, all right, let's uh, let's dive into the questions. So one of the... <laughs> I told you. <laughs> one, <laughs> so one of the questions I get asked most often uh, by Canadians who listen to the show, and this is specifically by Canadians who are, let's say, maybe 10 years from retirement, so they're starting to think about it. You know, it's time to start planning for it you know, in, in, more, in more detail. Uh, and Or Canadians who are just about to retire, or they have just retired. And now they're wondering, okay, well, I've been accumulating these assets. I've been putting money away into my RSP or my and or my TFSA my entire life. Uh, and now it's getting to that time where I'm going to have to start thinking or actually start withdrawing money you know from from this set of assets that i have now is there an order of preference that they should do this in terms so that they can save on taxes are there certain strategies or best practices that they should be using to basically do this in the most tax efficient and, and sort of best manner for them yeah um so on the one hand of course my my immediate knee-jerk response is to say well it totally depends on the person of course <laughs> Um, in general, I tend to follow um, fairly common strategies. Um, 
or, or advise common strategies. So if you have RRSPs, for example, um, and you know that for sure the year after you turn 71, you're going to have to start making withdrawals. In many cases, it makes sense to start your RRSP withdrawals by converting at least a portion of it to a RIF, which I think we're going to talk about in a little while. Yeah, for sure. Um, as soon as you don't have any employment income anymore or your employment income goes down because you've kind of transitioned to part-time work or something. And the reason for that is it's kind of, I always envision it as sort of a, you know, a pressure cooker in a way. So your RSP, of course, you, it's not a bad thing if it's growing. Um, but the more you have in your RSP, your minimum withdrawals are based on the balance at the end of the year before you withdraw, right? So at age 72, you have to take out a certain percentage of the amount that was in your account at the end of the year that you turned 71. So if, if you, that you're going to have to do that because that's the minimum, that's, the, that's government policy, um, then it, to me it makes sense to kind of release that pressure valve a little bit and start withdrawing from your RRSP earlier than when you have to. Not because you necessarily, I mean, withdrawing from your investments and spending those withdrawals are two separate concepts, but at least start moving money out of your RRSP accounts, um, pay the taxes on them gradually as you have lower income, let's say before CPP starts or before old age security starts. Um, and smooth those RRSP taxable withdrawals over your lifetime instead of letting them build up and build up until age 71 and then suddenly you've got a much larger withdrawal than perhaps you need. That would be a kind of a good problem to have, um, but it's one that people, the default is 71. Many people kind of subscribe to default thinking, I guess I'll just save it until 71. And I think there are opportunities there to, to as I say, smooth that taxable income out a little bit more. Mm -hmm. That's great. And then what about a TFSA? TFSAs, now, I, I like to see people invested in their TFSA. I think it's a waste of um, tax-free investment income if it's just interest, um, provided mm -hmm. that it kind of, obviously, you need your investments to match your risk tolerance and goals. But um, if you're investing inside your TFSA and you don't have any deadline for when you have to take that money out, to me, it makes sense that you take us, you kind of layer your RRS, your smoothed RRSP withdrawals first on top of your any pensions, your CPP, anything like that. And then on top of that, if you still need to supplement your RRSPs, you take money out of your tax-free savings account, or you view your tax-free savings account as um, your contingency fund that's still fully invested, according to your risk tolerance. <laughs> I have to keep throwing that in there. Um, right. That's still fully invested, but because there is no ticking clock that says you have to take money out of it, it doesn't matter if it continues to grow until you need some of it to buy a new car at some point or some of it to fund a transition into kind of a retirement facility or something you know uh, you know instead of long-term care insurance maybe use your tfsa in that way obviously those are very general but to me the tfsa comes very last right so would a good strategy be to for example somebody let's say they retired they they have very little or no income coming in now from regular employment let's say mm -hmm. so they they kind of release the valve like you said they take some money out of their RRSP and they take, let's say, enough out to, obviously this all depends on how much they actually need, but let's say, you know, they take some out so that let's say they sort of reach the peak of that lowest income tax bracket. Mm -hmm. And then if they need any money on top, uh, in addition to that, then maybe now they can they can take that in, some income from their TFSA so that basically they still have that spending money, but are now you know, they're, they're now not, they're not getting taxed on that TFSA money, right? And so they're basically sort of in that lowest tax bracket the whole time. Do you think that's a good strategy? Sure. I mean, of course, we're dancing around the issue that people have different spending needs. <laughs> right. For sure. Um, For sure. And to me, that staying within a certain tax bracket while kind of intellectually appealing isn't necessarily the be all and end all of retirement income planning. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, I mean, in general, if you can happily spend just kind of below, you know, if you can happily fund your necessary spending or desired spending and stay within that lowest tax bracket. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? For sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because yeah, the way I could see it is, let's say you have a couple and so, you know, they each have money that's saved up in the RRSPs. And so the one individual can withdraw money up to the limit of the lowest tax bracket. The second one does the same. And then after that, you say, okay, is this enough to live on? Is this the lifestyle we want? And if the answer is, well, no, we want more money, that we have, we want to withdraw more money than just this, 
then you use your TFSA and then that way you're sort of tax optimizing it, I would say, right? So that's kind of what I what I can see maybe working quite well, assuming once again that you're it meets the lifestyle that you want. Yeah, it means <laughs> and that you can afford it. <laughs> yeah, and it's sustainable in some way and kind of right, that you're right. comfortable with. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, there's a lot of caveats. <laughs> so many. <laughs> there's. It's not like, here's one golden rule that will work in every situation. Yeah. So no, no, but it's just uh, kind of generally uh, generally speaking. So yeah, obviously this comes with a lot of assumptions that it's the lifestyle they want. They actually have enough money saved, that it's sustainable, that they're not going to run out of money if they keep doing that over the long term. So obviously, yeah, we're, you know, there's a lot of these kind of extra caveats that you have to look into. Um, but yeah, that, that sounds good. Yeah, because that's... Um, that's kind of what I'm, uh, what I've been strategizing on, even though I'm still quite a few years. You have a ways to go, Carmel. But I am also a nerd, Sandy. So you know, <laughs> you you understand. I understand completely. <laughs> the bane of my existence and also the joy. <laughs> All right. So uh, my next question is that I think with Canadians, when it comes to retirement, they they can fall into two groups. So we've got one group where they just want to do sort of that traditional full retirement where they just completely stop working. You know, they live off the retirement savings. You know, that's that's their that's what they want to do, right? And then there's the other group, I think, that say, well, no, you know, I, I do still want to sort of be a bit engaged. Maybe I want to do some consulting or start a business that I always want to start. So I'll still, you know, I'll be doing something I enjoy doing, something I like, something I'm passionate about, but that actually also brings me some income. Maybe not as much as I probably not as much as I did when I was working full-time, but, you know, at least something extra. So can you talk about sort of those two approaches to retirement and how does that affect things from a retirement planning perspective? Um, I mean, in, if we want to talk about general rules of thumb, the more income that you have that is not coming from your investments into retirement, the better off you are, right? Because the less you have to spend from your investments, especially in the early years, um, uh, the more sustainable your nest egg is going to be, the more likely it's going to last for longer, right? Um, and that coupled with the fact that most pension plans, like private pension plans, um, CPP, o OAS, I don't know how long this policy will last, most of them reward you for deferring for a little while. Um, mm -hmm. And any, any, kind, any stream of income in retirement that is guaranteed for your lifetime indexed or partially indexed to inflation. Um, well, those are the two things. <laughs> Guaranteed for your lifetime and indexed to inflation or partially indexed to inflation. Those are really valuable streams of income. So if you can, um, because, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to say 17 things at once. So if you work in retirement, you kind of slow down, there's three things happening. You're not taking as much from your investments because you're earning still some money. You're still using, you're, you're withdrawing from your human capital instead of your invested assets. You're either being able to delay um, and, in, and therefore increase the amount of money coming from your floor income, your guaranteed pensions. Um, and potentially you still have the ability to save a little bit. Um, you may not, I mean, that might not be true. So, so those things, all of those things help increase your uh, retirement income sustainability um, because you're still earning income. You know, if you're working up until age 71, you still are able to kind of take advantage of um, RRSP deductions. If you're not working completely, if it's just, look, I'm stopped, I'm done, I'm doing other things, um, then that's an admirable goal. Like I would never want to tell somebody, well, you probably should still work because it's healthier for you financially. It might not be healthy for you mentally. Um, if you're not working, then it means, uh, you know, at a certain point, you've stopped withdrawing from your human capital, you're withdrawing from your invested assets and from your pension assets. And it means you need, especially in the first few years, you need to be um, careful about the way that you withdraw because you don't have the ability to go out next month and earn some more money at your part-time job or get another consulting contract. Your options are more limited and your money is more finite. Um, other than that, there's a hundred things we could say, but does that answer the question? <laughs> For sure. And I think, you know, we're kind of uh, moving a bit towards talking about sequence of returns risk, because this is very much kind of what you're, what you're talking a little bit about here, it sounds yeah. like as well. So maybe I'll, I'll skip forward a few questions and let's, let's talk about sequence of returns risks. Can you 
define what that actually is for those that haven't heard of it before. Uh, and then how can we protect ourselves from it? And this is kind of one of the answers is, well, you work a bit in your retirement. Sounds like, I mean, that's kind of, we sort of, we just kind of answered that a little bit, um, right? Because you could just slow down, work a bit less, but still work a little bit in your retirement in those years when you are most vulnerable. And then that will kind of help cushion you if something goes wrong so that you don't have to draw on your investments necessarily. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Please define sequence of returns or risks so that everyone knows what we're talking about. Right, right. So we all we all talk about average rate of return, right? Like, well, you know, um, I think we're, there's going to be, a, you'll, we'll have a 6% rate of return over the next 15 years. Well, that, or we've had a, you know, stocks have averaged 8% over the past you know, 140 years of recorded stock market history or whatever those statistics are. Those numbers are the average, right? So it's, you take the, them all up and you add them together and maybe you take the geometric or you take the arithmetic, whatever, and you come up with this amount that does, it doesn't matter what order those returns came in. You just, at the end of 10 years, you got 6% and you were very happy. It matters when you're withdrawing. I mean, it matters when you're adding money to your investments. What the sequence of return risk or sequence of returns is, um, but it matters more when you're withdrawing from your investments because if you have five hundred thousand dollars at the beginning of your retirement period, and you have to withdraw money in the first year, and in the first year you have a fifteen percent return, well, presumably at the end of the year you actually have more money than when you started with because you're probably not withdrawing fifteen percent. I hope. Um, uh, conversely, <laughs> um, if you start retirement and you have to withdraw and you get minus 15 returns, which, which could, I mean, if, if you're in a 50, 50 or a 60, 40 portfolio, which a lot of retirees are, or even less, you could presumably have a drawdown of 10 to 15%, right? If you are withdrawing money from your investments and you have poor returns in the first few years of retirement, it means that you've taken money out of a declining portfolio balance and there's less money to go around when um, when the market inevitably recovers, right? So you participate less in the recovery because you've withdrawn money and spent it on necessary spending. Um, so the so it's not just the average return that you receive, it's the order in which you receive those returns. That's a, the thought of um, a sequence of return risk because there's actually a lot of really good written um, resources like Moshe Malevsky is one of the researchers at Schulich School of Business at York um, that uh, writes really, really ably about that. Um, there's a lot of resources if you want to kind of dive deeper into that. Now, if we want to talk about avoiding sequence of return risks, there's only two ways to do that. You don't spend anything out of your portfolio. Um, for most people, that's not a realistic option. If you have fully retired, the idea that you wouldn't spend anything out of your out of your portfolio doesn't make a lot of sense. If you've partially retired, I mean, again, coming back to the thing, the unspoken rule about retirement income is it all depends on how you spend your money, actually, in reality. So if you can control your spending so that you don't have to withdraw from your investments, but you could if you wanted to, that's a way to protect yourself from sequence of returns. The other way to protect yourself is to not be invested in the markets at all. Mm -hmm. um, so that's when people talk about um, annuities or kind of only investing in GICs or keeping their money in cash under the mattress. That's a way to avoid sequence of return risk. There is no sequence of returns. It's well, um, excuse me, there is. They're called interest rates, and uh, and conversely, the inflation that erodes it. But you don't. You're not going to see volatility. It doesn't matter if you spend money out of a five hundred thousand dollar portfolio. If it's getting two percent, it's probably going to get two percent ongoing. Right? It's not. It really is not a magnified problem. Except then if you're not invested in the markets at all, let's say, because you take that approach, then it's like you're removing sequence of returns risk, but now you're adding on inflation risk, right? And so now that because that could be eroding your, you know, like like right now, for example, right, where there's some people that buy sort of mutual funds where there's bonds, you know, that are made by bonds, let's say, and then after all the fees and with the interest rates the way they are, they're basically earning nothing, right? And so there's kind of that piece as well, right? Sure. But retirement income planning, or in fact, any kind of financial planning, it's all trade-offs. I mean, there's a very few levers that you can actually pull in retirement mm -hmm. planning. So your spending is one of them, the amount of risk that you take and the volatility that you're willing to take and the sequence of return risk that you're willing to take, all of those things. And the, the length of time that you live, well, you can't really pull that lever. But if, you know, 
I speak with clients a lot about this and part of the most important part, I think, of retirement income planning is not jumping right to when do you take your RSPs out and should you annuitize anything? It's what risks are you likely to face and what mm -hmm. risks are you worried about facing and what are the trade-offs you're willing to make to avoid that risk? So if you if you are really worried about the markets going down precipitously in the first few years of retirement, and you're worried enough that you're willing to spend less in the first few years of retirement or lock yourself into spending less for all of your years of retirement, and you think you could be quite comfortable on the, yes, inflation eroded returns mm -hmm. in a guaranteed portfolio, why wouldn't you? Okay. Yeah. So so I, your, your observation is absolutely right. It's just, again, if you pull on, if you pull that thread, pull the inflation thread, you have to make up for it somewhere else. And some people are totally right. fine with making that trade off. Right. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. That makes sense. And then, you know, speaking of sequence of returns risk, when should Canadians start worrying about that? At what age? I mean, the most common kind of number that I've seen and read is basically sort of if you're 10 years out from retirement, that's kind of when you should start kind of worrying about it. You start looking at things on more of a micro level. You start thinking about this, asking these questions. Would you agree with that or do you recommend something different? Um, most of the research that I have read would suggest that the five years preceding and the five years immediately following retirement, and, and by retirement I mean when you start spending out of your portfolio, um, okay. though that kind of those two five-year shoulders covering a 10-year mm -hmm. span are the most sensitive to sequence of return risk. Um, and in general, sequence of return risk shouldn't be the only thing that you're worried about as you plan for retirement, but as you get closer to within 10 or five years from retirement, the numbers get more precise, right? So not just sequence risk, but how much you would get from CPP if you stopped at this date versus that date, if you claimed it at 63 right. versus 65. The, you, can, you can plan for that 10 years out or 15 years out, but you can plan better for it the closer you get because you can actually start to see precise numbers. For sure, yeah. for sure. Mm -hmm. That sounds good, yeah. Five sounds a lot, five... Uh before and five years after sounds a lot more encouraging than 10 years before, 10 years after <laughs> 20 years, right? That's quite a bit. The depressing truth is sequence risk matters all the time, but actually yeah. what we want you and I, we want markets to be down for the next 15 years while we're doing our, well, actually maybe over the daycare years, maybe we could just have markets do whatever they want to, but while we're ready to like the mortgage is paid off, we've got $50,000 a year to invest. We would like the markets to be just in the pits. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> Sorry, every retiree from 15 years from now. <laughs> all right, that sounds good, Sandy. Uh, all right, so let's um, let's talk a little bit about some of these uh, definitions that exist out here for Canadians. Sure. So there's there's a lot of definitions, a lot that Canadians have to sort of learn and, and know about, and it's pretty confusing. A lot of acronyms, and uh, so what I thought we could do is really just go through some of them. Just to, and you could maybe define them for us, explain what they are, how it applies to everything, just to help get some clarity on this. Uh, because, you know, most people probably don't enjoy reading the CRA website. <laughs> what? <laughs> that is news to me. <laughs> so I think, I think coming from you, it might be more enjoyable. Oh, well, can't make instead all right, so <laughs> so pressure's on, Sandy. Mm. All right, so to kick things off, can you talk about what a lira is? Can I ask? Can we talk about an RPP first? Because it'll make sure. sense. Sure, let's do it. So an RPP is, I mean, a look. There's there's a lot of little technicalities that you would have to read the CR website, um, CRA website to really get. But essentially, an RPP is when you put money into a plan with your employer and your pl employer either matches or contributes a certain amount with you. Um, so um, that's your that's what we would call a defined contribution pension plan. There's a lot of different names for it, but it's your work plan. And it's one that your employer is also allowed to contribute to. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll see, sometimes you'll see RPP, sometimes you'll see defined contribution pension plan. Um, there's a lot of, yeah, I, I think I said that already, but there's lots of different names, but essentially if your employer is also giving you money, um, it's a RPP. <laughs> and then with, oh, sorry, no, finish what you were saying. No, I was going to, I was going to skip right over to Lira's then. Okay. All right. So, and then when it comes to RPPs, then we sort of get into the question of 
okay, when it, we're talking about pensions now. So can you talk about what a defined benefit plan is versus a defined contribution plan is as well? Right. So defined contribution is you put money in and your employer puts money in, but essentially it's just an investable pot of money. Your employer has um, works with a, one particular financial institution usually, and that institution gives you um, a menu of investment choices. So there might be some target date funds in there. There might be a couple of different like Betel Goodman and Sun Life something something fund. You'll probably you probably see it every year. You have to review your statements. Mm-hmm. Um, so you choose what investments go into. And at the end, at the end, either when you retire, or when you leave that company, that pot of money is yours. Now, we'll talk about kind of taxation reasons and constraints around that pot of money. But that's defined contribution. It's just you and your employer working together to invest, but it's your investment. You control how it's invested. Your employer might pay for some of the management costs, so it's cheaper than if you were buying those funds yourself, but that's about it. Defined benefit plan is you have an agreed upon percentage of your income, kind of very similar. You put money in, um, and then your employer also puts money in, but it's managed in a way so that you get a guaranteed payout at retirement. And that is, um, it's, it acts much like an annuity does. You know, there's actuaries that talk about how long you're likely to live, and therefore that's how much money you get from your plan every year. Sometimes they're guaranteed indexed to inflation, sometimes they're not. Most of them have, and so, um, both defined contribution and defined benefit plans have rules about how much you have to, um, how much has to be available for your spouse if you, sh- if you should die uh, as a retiree. Um, but defined contribution plan is basically you can budget in retirement for having X amount of dollars every year for your lifetime, either indexed to inflation or not. And a defined contribution plan is you have a pot of money and you need to figure out how much you can take out every year and whether you're comfortable with and you'll be exposed to sequence risk and everything else. Does that make sense? Sounds, <laughs> sounds good. Yeah, oh, it makes sense for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so with, uh, with the defined contribution plan, I think it's safe to say that most Canadians who have sort of a regular job, maybe, you know, working at a I don't, medium to large company, generally those companies will offer defined contribution plan. And so you've got, so for example, you know, my wife works at BlackBerry right now. And so they have, you know, you might be with Sun Life or Manual Life or something like that. Mm -hmm. They have some sort of an arrangement, right? So now, you know, she contributes X amount, they match it to a certain amount. And then she gets to pick, like you said, Sandy, from from an array of options in terms of what that money goes into. And so that's sort of your, uh, her RPP. Would that be fair to say, Sandy? Yeah, you got it. Okay, awesome. And then somebody that's, let's say, a firefighter, police officer, government employee, generally speaking, right? These are the individuals who have the defined benefit plans, which are teachers, for example, mm-hmm. right? Bankers. Some bankers, bankers still have DB plans. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> I, didn't, I thought it was just uh, government, uh, primarily government employees. But no, uh... I, I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's, I think, more true in the States than it is here. And, of course, we get a lot of you know, um, news media stuff from the states talking about the death of the defined benefit pension plan. And while it's Hmm. true, there are fewer defined benefit pension plans here in Canada, there's still a kind of more participation than I think you might suspect from, you know, headlines in newspapers. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's great. So you can actually get that guaranteed uh, income. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's super valuable. That's great. So if, if somebody wants that and they can't get a government job, there are there are options out there. That's so right. That's <laughs> so that's good. Uh, all right. So yeah. So let's let's move on to the lira now. You, can you define that? Right. So the lira is if you leave a a, a company where you were a participant in the in a, in a defined contribution plan or a defined benefit plan. One of the things that you need to do when you leave the company is decide whether you leave your money with them. Or you bring it over and you manage it all completely on your own. Now, typically in a defined contribution scenario, you always take it with you. You just you you don't usually leave it at Sun Life, although that's Sun Life wants you to do that. You're outside of the plan. So if there were any um, you know discounts on management expense ratios for funds, those end because you're not you know an active participant. But a lira. Mm, okay. uh, so and, sorry, let me finish with the defined benefit too. Um, and then with a defined benefit pension plan, you have the option to. Um, someday turn your pension on 
um, you don't earn any more like credits towards the the eventual amount that you get every year, but you could just leave that money in the defined benefit pension plan and get some reduced amount at retirement age, or you can take the actuarially adjusted. Um, it's called the. Oh, I know this word. Anyways, <laughs> the <laughs> commuted the commuted value. They'll offer you this amount per year starting at age 65, or this amount, which we think is based on kind of your life expectancy profile. If you were to take that money at age 65, this is the amount we think it, it would cost to fund your entire retirement. So you can have that now, but you can't just have it as cash. It has to go into a locked in retirement account, a lira, which operates very similar to an RRSP. You typically can't put any of your own money in there anymore. It's locked in. Well, there are some exceptions. Um, and until age 55, you really can't withdraw from it, except for under certain very specific situations. Like if you have um, kind of a health crisis, if you're in danger of losing your home. Most provinces have fairly similar legislation because um, locked-in retirement accounts are entirely governed by the province that they are that they originate in. Um, some of them are, are federal, but anyways, there's a whole there's like 13 different sets of rules essentially. Um, but 55 is the year where you could unlock um, some of your money um, and then you could just put it into an RRSP or take it as cash and pay the tax on it. Um, and the only other thing that's different for, with from a lira to an RRSP, except for you know, that, that locked in part, um, once you convert a lira into a life income fund, similar to a registered retirement income fund or a RIF that people talk about, um, there is not only a minimum amount that you have to withdraw, but there is also a maximum amount that you can't withdraw above. So RIFs okay. have no maximum, LIFs have a maximum as well. Does that make sense? <laughs> it, it, it makes sense. Yeah, that was my next question is what is a, what is a life income fund? So I think you, I think you answered that pretty well. So it's like a, it's like, a, it's basically like a RIF, except that it comes from your Lira mm -hmm. and there is that extra rule where there's actually a maximum that you're allowed to withdraw as well. Sure. Whereas with your RSP, you could theoretically withdraw everything all at once, even though that would probably destroy you from a taxation perspective. <laughs> but <laughs> assuming you had a lot of money in there. There are some situations <laughs> where it might be appropriate, but no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but generally speaking, you don't take out all your RSP savings at once if you have any significant amount in there. Typically, yeah, typically. Because <laughs> then you'll get, you'll get put in the highest bracket and you'll be crying so <laughs> unless you just like uh, paying taxes but yeah anyways i digress so <laughs> moving on what <laughs> uh, can you talk about what a locked in retirement income fund is so a locked in retirement income fund is very there's an l riff and there's a lif and there's a new lif all of these things are essentially the same idea it's money that is the income in it is tax sheltered in the same way that it is in a RIF. Um, you have to take a certain mandated uh, minimum withdrawal from it. Um, but I mean, essentially, the difference between an LRIF and an LIF is very small. I mean, to the point where it, it's it's pretty rare that it would have that the difference would really have any impact on the decisions that you make about your retirement or about your spending. Okay, sounds good. And then with um kind of in that same bucket, there's also the prescribed registered retirement income fund, yet another acronym. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? <laughs> it's, I mean, essentially, it's the same thing. It's a, another locked in retirement account. Um, mm -hmm. and, and again, if you are, some provinces call, um, call things one thing and some things call it another, or some provinces call it another. So in mm -hmm. general, if it says registered and income fund, in some way, it's, it's, you have to take money out of it. If it ends in IF, you have to take money out of it. And right. the income that's earned inside is tax-free until it's withdrawn. Um, if it ends in SP or PP, it's probably money that you're not withdrawing and it's just collecting in some way. So whether it's prescribed or not prescribed or locked in or whatever, I mean, those are all important, but in different small ways. And it all sounds pretty confusing because it's just one acronym after the other. And they all <laughs> so... have R's and P's. Yeah, and it's yeah. just like five letters that they just rearrange every time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like there's RIF, which is R-R-I-F. And then there's the you know L RIF, which is now with one R instead. But now there's an L. In front, so there's just... <laughs> keep makes things, makes things interesting. Uh, but anyway, so I, I think kind of the bottom line here is if you... 
you know, if you're getting kind of um, maybe overwhelmed by all this or if you feel, you know, you want some more detail, the, the, realistically, when you get to that level where, let's say, you're approaching retirement, let's say you're five years, 10 years out, I mean, I personally feel at that point you should, you know, if, if you don't already have a financial planner, you should at least get somebody, uh, you know, kind of qualified that's experienced with this. Uh, at that point, you know, you you sit down with them, they can see how, which one kind of applies to your situation because you can't just look at, you know, your RSP, right? You have to look at, okay, well, you might have someone in RSP, you might have some in TFSA, you might have some in both, you might have some in your RPP as well. And then how do we convert this strategically to save on tax? You know, there's all these different gears and, you know, do you have side income as well? Like there's just all these, <laughs> all these things you have to take into account and it's really hard to pull off yourself, I would argue, if this isn't something that you do kind of on an everyday basis, because as you can see, there's a lot of acronyms, it's complicated, and also things change as well, right? Like the government can change different rules, they may add different things, you know, but especially if you're sort of younger, like in my situation, right, where we don't really know what's going to happen 30 years from now, if there's going to be something new or whatever the case may be. So, you know, kind of bottom line here is this is sort of just to give you a bit of the listeners a little bit of a primer and then just to sort of hopefully get make you a little bit less overwhelmed by this. Uh, but then just keep in mind that, yeah, if you still have some follow up questions, I mean, that's when, you know, when you're at that level, that's where you get somebody like Sandy or, you know, or someone that's qualified you know, like Sandy, you know, kind of in this area and you talk to them and they sort of help you out specific to your situation because everyone is a little bit different. Um, so I just thought I'd mention that as well. I concur. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. That's great. So, so thanks for clearing that up, Sandy. Cause yeah, lots of, lots of acronyms, lots of confusion. Mm -hmm. And I totally, you know, when you look at all these things, I totally understand why it's kind of, I would say one of the top two questions that I get asked from the show is, you know, the, the, the first question is generally, you know, how do I actually get started in investing? What's an ETF? How does it work? All, you know, all these, what is index investing, things of that nature. Uh, and then the second most common one is if individuals who are, okay, well, I've already been investing and now how, how the heck do I <laughs> deal with this now that I'm actually about to use all this money? So I'm, I'm glad you, you shed some light on this and hopefully hopefully caused some, cleared some things up as well. Hopefully. <laughs> and, and if not, you do, uh, yeah, you, you can, you can help uh, Canadians out with this stuff as well to clear things up. So <laughs> I feel, I feel they're in good hands. Uh, all right. So, so that's great. Um, now just kind of shifting focus slightly. Um, one of the things, you know, when it comes to retirement planning, we talked about this a little bit about, uh, the returns that mm -hmm. Canadians can expect on stocks and bonds. And then there's the average and there's all these different ways of looking at it. And, you know, obviously you have to somehow for try to forecast your, the returns you're going to get. C can you talk a little bit about this? What, what numbers do you use? Can you talk about real versus nominal returns as well sure. for those that aren't familiar and maybe just some caveats to be, to be careful of. You already brought this up a little bit as well, like using the average and then then you look at sequence of returns. But yeah, maybe if you can discuss a little bit sure. when it comes to that. Well, one of the resources that I um, am very grateful to have is the, um, the PWL Capital Great Expectations white paper that they put out every year. So if you're not familiar, PWL Capital is the company that Dan Bordelotti, who is the Canadian couch potato, works with now um, as an advisor. Um, and so he and Justin Bender maybe not Justin, maybe it's somebody else in the firm, um, they put out a white paper um, that, that uses two different approaches to sort of come to a kind of an average expectation of what the next sort of 10, 15 years of market returns will look like. So and kind of trying to forecast market returns over 40 years seems a little silly, um, but not forecasting at all also seems silly. Like, well, I don't know. There's no way to know. So let's not plan at all. That is obviously anathema sure. to my personality. Um, <laughs> so when it comes to, so there's actually th kind of three levels of, of returns that I like to talk about. And the first one is sort of market returns, right? So, you know, as with the classic 60-40 example portfolio, what the kind of white paper is saying is based on kind of the mathematics of bond yields and what we expect from um, uh, equity the equity portion of, of a portfolio, a 60-40 portfolio in the market would, over the next 10 years, be likely to earn kind of 5.5% or thereabouts. Now, one caveat, it's very silly for me to even be using decimal points, like the idea that we can be precise enough to come within 50 basis right, points. Right, right. <laughs> but I'm going to use them anyway because that's just the way that my mind works. But please know that I know you, how ridiculous sure? it is. 
Are, are your shirts not 5.6, Sandy? <laughs> oh, let's go back and do we the should, calculations. We should argue that point. That's right. Um, so that's market returns. But we know that we, you and I cannot participate purely in the market without paying any money for it. So whether you're just buying stocks and bonds, you're paying commissions, bid-ask spreads, and trading costs. Um, if you're buying mutual funds or ETFs, there is some amount of management expense ratio. So just below market returns, I would say your nominal return. So the not just nominal return is just, you know, over 15 years, I earned five and a half percent. Well, but I I think I'm going to earn five and a half percent, but I'm with somebody that's, you know, it's charging me one percent. So in fact, I'm going to earn four and a half percent. So your nominal return you know, after you take fees into account, four and a half percent. So obviously there's a lot of scope for making adjustments because you can control your fees in a way that you cannot control market returns. It's a theme. It's the theme of Sandy's life is talking about controlling costs. <laughs> um, but then we also have to say, well, we know inflation is a real thing. So we can't, I didn't actually earn four and a half percent because the stuff that I want to buy with the investments that I earned four and a half percent on increased in cost over that same 10 year period by 2%. Let's say, let's say we think inflation is going to be 2%. So that means instead of getting four and a half percent, I got two and a half percent. Now those numbers sound bleak and terrible. I don't mean them to sound that way, but I think it's very, it's more important to have conservative or kind of conservative slash realistic expectations about what the market can do for you when you're planning for your retirement or saving towards a particular goal than it is to say, well, that's dumb. That's too conservative. I know I'm going to earn 8% because that's what the market has done for the past 10 years. Of course, that's my personality. I would much rather be surprised on the good side than surprised on the bad side and actually have earned 2.5% when I really thought I was going to earn 4.5%. Mm -hmm. um, so nominal returns is just kind of the actual number you put on it. Real returns is that number, but adjusted for what it actually can buy in the future. Does that make sense? I should stop asking you if it makes sense. I'm going to stop now, I promise. <laughs> no, it makes sense, Eddie. That's great. Thanks. <laughs> Um, okay, so next question is regarding annuities. So some Canadians consider purchasing annuities for the retirement. Can you talk a little, you brought it up a couple of times, but can you define what an annuity actually is? And just maybe tell us as well what your thoughts are on annuities. Annuities are the redheaded stepchild of, of, of uh, retirement income products. So the first thing I'll say is that I am not an expert in what we would say is product allocation. So not only, we know asset allocation, right? Like bonds, stocks, real estate, emerging markets, whatever. That's asset allocation. Product allocation is, um, you could say RSP, TFSA, but more realistically, you would say kind of investments that are exposed to the market in some amount and kind of guaranteed um, streams of income like an annuity. But annuities are really out of fashion, partially because there's kind of a whole uh, skeevy kind of thing about them, like they're sold on commission and they're really opaque products. It's hard for people who aren't money nerds, and even for me who is a money nerd, to really grasp all of the elements that go into pricing an annuity. Also, mm -hmm. they're unfashionable because um, they're guaranteed income. So of course, the insurance company that's issuing them has to have almost a guaranteed stream of income to pay to make good on their promises which means right. they promise a lot less because guaranteed income right now as we know with interest rates is very very low so people also look at it and say well i'm you know i i'm getting less than i would if i had a gic um and withdrew from that gic over 25 years than i'm getting from an income annuity the thing is about annuities now when i talk about annuities i'm not talking about variable or index linked or any of those things i'm really just talking plain vanilla you give them money and they start giving you income the next month or whatever um so anything else i'm going to leave to people who sell them because i don't i'm not going to talk about them um but the reality is an annuity is not just it's not you don't evaluate the the value of an annuity to you by kind of how much um, investment return you received from it, you're evaluating it as some insurance for how long you might live. So longevity protection, right? If you're really worried about outliving your money, then part of your income should be guaranteed for life. So for people that don't have a defined benefit pension plan or get, were self-employed all their lives and have very little CPP or I mean, any number of reasons or have a particularly high um, need to spend in the first few years or first you know, number of years in retirement because let's say they haven't paid their mortgage off or something like that. Yes, you're trading lower lifetime income um, to buy an annuity and have that guarantee. 
but I think that they should not be as unfashionable as they are. And I have two things on my wish list. One, that people would read more about them and just kind of come to understand the role that, you know, the concept of mortality credits. I mean, there's a lot of reading you could do that just kind of helps people to conceptualize what the value of an annuity is. Um, and then the other thing is I wish annuities were less opaque and that more people um, that you could either buy them direct from the insurance company, which you really can't right now, um, um, or um, insurance brokers didn't sell anything else and only sold annuities and weren't trying to sell people on guaranteed minimal withdrawal and I don't know, all the other stuff that's in there. <laughs> there, are, there are actually really good resources um, to learn a little bit more about annuities. There's a couple of um, oh, there's a lot of resources, but one of them is actually here in Canada, Pensionize Your Nest Egg by Moshe Malevsky. He's one of the people that I mentioned earlier talking about sequence risk. Um, and Alexandra McQueen, they wrote a book um, and recently updated it for the international market. But the Canadian one has a blue cover and is still quite good. <laughs> now, I, 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 obviously, I could talk a lot about annuities too. That's good. Yeah. So, Sandy, maybe what we'll do is we'll put um we'll put the, those links in the show notes. Sure. And so, if you could send those resources to me, or, or just the links to them, yeah. I'll be sure to just from what you brought up, and also everything else you brought up earlier too. Um, like you mentioned, the white paper as well, mm -hmm. just to sort of set the expectations for the returns, things like that. Um, yeah, I, I can definitely include that in the show notes so that everyone can just go on there and uh, and, and check them out. So that sounds great. Good. All right. So that's all for my sort of technical questions. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, kind of, I guess, more about yourself and the free consultation that you offer to Canadians? Well, I, I mean, a lot of retirement planning or any kind of financial planning has to do with how you learn information and what what pieces you don't know and what pieces you need somebody else to check you on or fill you in on. So it seems sort of silly to me to tell people, I do financial planning, pay me money and I'll do it for you without having a conversation about it first. <laughs> right. Because I think, I mean, I just had a very long sort of Twitter, I won't call it an argument, but it was almost an argument um, last night with somebody who was talking about how easy it is to, oh, just invest in index ETFs and all of your financial problems are solved, essentially. Um, but I think there's a lot of intimidation around financial planning in the financial services industry, partially because people suspect conflict of interest and partially because we in the industry have done a really good job of intimidating people like you don't know anything. So you need to talk to an expert, which I don't think for the most part is true. People are experts on their own lives, hopefully on the way that they spend their money, although there's there's room for improvement there, I think. Um, what they want out of life, their goals, all, I mean, all of those things, people are actually much smarter than they give themselves credit for. And they're afraid to come and talk to somebody like me because they think I'm going to start talking about PPRIFs or, you know, just speaking in acronyms all the time. And that's not the way that I operate. Although some people want to do that. Some people are only interested in, you know, tax optimization um, to the nth degree. And but so how do we know that we would work really well together until we've actually spoken to each other you can talk about what's important to you. I can talk about kind of how I think we should approach it. And we come to some sort of consensus on how much that should cost. I mean, obviously, I'm a business owner. I have sort of set prices for my time and have put things together in packages or whatever. But I don't believe that it's my job to impose the kind of financial planning that I do and the questions that I think you should be asking on you. I think you should be able to ask me questions and I should work to help you understand, either understand the answer or understand why that might be a bit of a rabbit trail. And maybe we should focus on this because this is actually more important to your long-term success. Or um, So yeah, anyways, of course, it's obvious from this conversation that I like talking. And I think people should have a chance to talk before kind of we get into any sort of formal engagement. That's great, said. You know, thanks so much for uh, for explaining that. And uh, no, that that sounds great. So yeah, I'll definitely have a, a link to you know your site and your resources and all of that uh, in the show notes. Of of course, you're um, in the directory as well. And so you can kind of see another interview with Sandy there too, where, where we talk more specifically about her and her practice and what she offers and her experience. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's great, Sandy. Thanks so much for all of that. And uh, that's that's all the questions that I had. So thank you. It, it was my pleasure. Thanks for letting me take an hour and talk your ear off. <laughs> I enjoyed it very much. Thanks, Sandy. <laughs>
All right, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Sandy. You can get all the resources she mentioned for free by going to the show notes over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash 28. So just the number 28. Also, while you're there, you can sign up for the free 30-minute one-on-one consultation with Sandy that we talked about who can basically help you answer questions like, are you actually on track to retire? Did you maybe miss something in your retirement analysis that can really hurt you long-term? What's the best way to take out income from your portfolio to minimize taxes? And this is probably one of the most common question I get when it comes to retirement planning. Also, are you actually saving enough for retirement? How much do you need to save so that you can actually retire comfortably and live in the kind of lifestyle that you want? And and when can you retire? Maybe based on what you have right now in your lifestyle, maybe you can fully retire right now or maybe even semi-retire right now. Maybe you never even you know thought that would be possible, but but it might be. So definitely something worth looking into if that's your ambition. Also, when should you choose to take your CPP and OAS? Obviously, there are advantages to delaying get receiving these, but you know what's the best move for you? What's the best strategy for you based on all the revenue that you'll have coming in, based on your income, your investments, etc.? And what kind of lifestyle can you expect when you retire based on your current savings? Should you maybe step up your savings rate? Do you think maybe you've already perhaps maybe you've already saved enough to live the kind of lifestyle that you want? You know, what is what is it specifically for you? Also, how can you help ensure that you don't actually run out of money in your retirement? Obviously, Obviously, something we should all be very, very knowledgeable about to not really get ourselves into any sort of catastrophic situation. And really, you can ask her anything else that you'd like to know to help ensure that you are able to retire on your own terms and live the type of lifestyle that you want in retirement. So once again, the link for the free resources and the free consultation is buildwealthcanada.ca slash 28. So just the number 28. All right. I look forward to seeing you there. Cheers and have a great week. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 